Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 15. Chapter 15 by Ernest Chamberlain The Desk's Dead Wood Who first invented work and bound the free and holy day rejoicing spirit down to the ever-haunting importunity of business in the green fields and the town, to plough, loom, anvil, spade, and oh, most sad, to that dry drudgery at the desk's dead wood. A quote by Charles Lamb. We sailed from St. Vincent in a hurry to escape the overzealous rum punches of the hospitable Vincentians. Leaving the shelter of Young's Island, we ambled northward past Kingstown, the capital, which lay sweating in the midday sun. The sailing in the lee of the island was smooth and delightful, the sort of sailing which convinced us that we were tough, hardy sailors. We could stand the rigours of this for a long time. All day long we dawdled up the western coast of the island, so that by nightfall we were barely abreast of the northern tip. Once in the channel, between St. Vincent and St. Lucia, the motion quickly became less pleasant as opposing wind and current met. Throughout the night we tossed. The sunrise of December 19th revealed to the 4-6am to 6 watch the famed sentinels of St. Lucia, the twin 1,200-foot peaks called Les Pitons. We closed the land until we were in the shadow of Les Pitons, where we could see the lazy township of Souffre awakening. Fishing boats were being launched and came climbing smoothly over the swell. The sun peeped with a red-rimmed eye over the jagged hills and pushed us a smart clean breeze which funneled down through the rifts and valleys to send old content skipping along with squally excitement. The day grew hot and we subsided under awnings, munching bananas and watching the lush green island drift by to starboard. A miniature plantation wedged between a fold in the hills slipped by and a red-roofed fishing village where nets were draped over the beach like giant moths and canoes lay sprawled like stranded fish. As we neared Castries, the capital, we noticed a large plantation spread over a rich alluvial valley. Bound for New Zealand as we were, Don could not have dreamed that we would soon be working on that very plantation. We were not sure that we had found the entrance to Castries Harbour until we were upon it. The banks rose steeply out of the water and led us through the fjord-like channel to a sweet mooring in a little cove away from the noisy smells of the commercial anchorage, where trading sloops and schooners huddled. Customs formalities were simple. The harbour master, Commander Milburn, came aboard and extended every courtesy. He is one of the last of the English harbour masters in the islands, for British colonial policy is now to train and appoint West Indians. The commander soon became a regular visitor during our long and unexpected stay in the island. When port duties permitted, he would come aboard for a yarn over a cup of tea. He was one of those people to whom things happened. He had a sort of innate capacity for getting into scrapes and out of them. Things came his way which we lesser mortals would have never had the fortune, good or bad, to encounter. This capacity of his added spice and garnish to his yarns. His favourite story was of a treasure hunting trip to Cocos Island. When he left the navy and was looking around for a fair weather berth, he chanced to meet the black sheep of a wealthy family, whose mother had given him a trading schooner to keep him out of mischief. So they joined forces and began trading around the coast of Britain. 
but business was bad and one day in desperation they took a cargo of coal to Newcastle. There, the partner went ashore with the ship's papers, leaving the commander sitting on the coal. Weeks went by with no sign of the owner, so, deciding that the master had mutinied, Commander M quit his uncomfortable seat and joined a treasure-hunting expedition which was conveniently fitting out at the time. They were bound for Cocos Island to hunt for a fabulous pirate treasure there. Their first foreign port of call was Trinidad, where the treasurer of the expedition had a simply wonderful time, whilst the rest of the crew went on to short rations. They sailed, however, and ultimately reached the Cocos, they were about the 34th expedition to do so, where they dug conscientiously for many months. Whilst they are digging, it might be interesting to see just how the treasure they are seeking got to the island. The prospective Cocos Island treasure hunter has, in fact, three buried hoards from which to choose the most fabulous of these being that of the city of Lima, the capital of Peru. It was in 1821, while Bolivar was liberating the Spanish empires of South America, when it was rumoured that Bolivar was planning to sack Lima, that the governor and that the bishop of the city hurriedly began scheming to save their great treasure from the enemy. There was in Calao, the port of Lima, an English merchant ship, the Mary Dyer, under the command of Captain Thompson, a Scotsman, to this vessel the harassed dignitaries came. It was finally decided to put their treasure on board under the protection of the British flag, then transport it to some safe place in the south. Captain Thompson seemed an honest man, and the British had a reputation for integrity. The wealth of Lima was ferried out to the vessel in small boats, boat after boat laden with bars of gold, jewels and pieces of eight, chalices and rich vestments of the priests disappeared into the hold. It is reported that there were 272 jewelled swords. Captain Thompson proved most helpful, and when the governor, the archbishop and others came aboard to accompany the treasure, he lined up his crew and gave them a real man-o'-war welcome. At that very moment, he was planning one of the most daring thefts of all time. He must have completely lulled any doubts that the Spaniards might have had, for his passengers went peacefully to sleep as the ship slipped out of Calao. The Spaniards, who included some noble women, never awoke, for Thompson and his men murdered them as they slept, pitching the corpses overboard and swabbing clean the bloody decks. An ex-pirate, Benito Bonito, who knew the Cocos well, guided the captain there and chose a cunningly concealed hiding place for the treasure. Thompson and Benito sailed away and were later captured. Bonito killed himself, but Thompson was spared on condition that he reveal the treasure. Instead, he escaped and finally settled in Newfoundland, where he eventually passed on his knowledge. This knowledge came into the hands of a British naval officer. The information passed on by this gentleman has been the clue for more than one treasure-seeking expedition. Whilst our expedition was digging, there had been some subversive activity. Torido Navales and his marine worm cousin, the Gribble, had been digging equally conscientiously into the timbers of the expedition's 80-foot catch, with the result that when the crew returned aboard, they were just able to get her to Puerto Rico before she floated away in little pieces. Other expeditions have followed them, but the treasure, if there still be one, remains. We had arrived in Castries on the evening of December 19th and were planning to enjoy Christmas with friends in English Harbour, Antigua, but the fates thought otherwise. Optimistic as always, we had expected to find some money, about $600 awaiting us here, the money was to have been transferred from a bank in London. 
Instead, a brief but courteous note informed us that our gross capital was $2.40. Clearly, this was a crisis of some sort, a crisis, however, that was speedily resolved when I found myself a job as a surveyor and Don got a job in a sugar factory. Bill, it was agreed, would work on content, refitting her for the continued voyage, and as our official scribe would also write travel articles for which I had taken photographs. It seemed a long while since we had waved farewell to Father Buckley and the sisters of the Hossororo mission in British Guiana, but we were pleasantly reminded of them, for we carried an introduction from the father to his good friend, Mr. Harold DeVoe of Castries. Mr. DeVoe at once invited us to his home, where we met his equally charming wife and daughters. Their home, a very beautiful stone mansion, stood high on a hill above Castries. It was in this hospitable home that we came to learn and appreciate the relaxed delight of cool drinks, a deck chair and a tropical veranda. We would sit there and gaze down on the town, its grime and ruins wrapped in the soft tropical darkness. The cicadas would whir, the crickets would cheep and the bullfrogs would burp, vulgarly making shrill and ceaseless insect conversation which, as we became accustomed to it, faded into a relaxing drone of background music. On Christmas Eve, the Harold DeVos held their renowned Christmas Eve party to which we three and about 200 islanders were invited. During the afternoon, they had a kiddies party to which Bill went as Santa Claus. Bill, complete with cotton wool beard and hot red flannel robe, handed out presents. He caused quite a sensation because none of the children knew him, try as they did to penetrate his disguise. It seems that the kids knew everyone on the island who had ever played Santa Claus. Their favourite game being to see through the disguise and expose the Santa Claus myth. A round of other Christmas parties followed which gave us a cheery introduction to the island and constituted a sort of last fling before settling down to work. In June of 1948, some misguided fire raiser had set Castries alight by firing his wooden shack. The fire had spread through the tinder-dry buildings at great speed, fanned by an ironical trade wind, and burned down almost two-thirds of the town before the eyes of the populace and the fire brigade, who stood around shouting, E-gas! E-gas, translated from the vernacular, may mean anything from jeepers to hell's bells. The fire brigade had finally managed to root out some hoses, but by that time there was no water. In spite of the humorous aspect, the fire was a real tragedy in loss of homes and property. Towards the reconstruction, the home government in Britain donated $4 million, whilst a third as much again was raised locally. The rebuilding began in 1949 under the control of the Colonial Development Corporation. So I joined the CDC in a temporary capacity, and every morning at 10 minutes to 9 I would set sail for the office in the dinghy. All day long I pored over the plans of the new castries, but in the evenings I would pore over charts of the Pacific. We made calculations, plotting money earned against the time it would take us to reach New Zealand, and decided that we would sail sometime in May. Planning our Pacific voyage, which was to include Ecuador and Peru, delightfully eased the pain of going to the office every morning. Don started work six weeks after me, for his contract read, for the duration of the sugar crop, which starts in February and stretches to the end of May. Certain domestic complications arose when he began his work, for the sugar factory lay some six miles away over torturous mountain roads. For a while, we shared a car with a CDC engineer, but later, when we lost that, 
we purchased in desperation an antiquated Ford which had excellent brakes and some good tyres to recommend it. There were snags though. When we drove it through town, it caused not a little commotion, for, to the casual observer, the car appeared to be travelling in an oblique direction to that in which it was really going. This unusual effect was heightened by having the offside fender removed and stowed in the rear seat. All this, coupled with some remarkable engine noises, gave the old car a few brief moments of glory before she carried us nobly over the hills in one unforgettably thrilling ride, then retired from active life. After that, we bought a folding motor bicycle, which served very well. With a one and a half horsepower motor, it would do over 30 miles an hour, and as Don roared through the suburbs on it, the people would often raise a ragged cheer. In England, Don had been a food research chemist with a malted milk concern. In the St. Lucian sugar factory, his job was to supervise the laboratory. This laboratory was responsible for determining the sugar content of the sugar cane and also the purity of the sugar. His laboratory, recently modernized, could be said to have running water, for when the sink overflowed, the water always ran away most satisfactorily. He also had complete charge of several excellent test tubes, although complete charge is perhaps something of a misstatement, for when the mosquitoes moved into the unprotected lab, they had the control. To combat this, Don would go off to work, bathed in strong-smelling anti-mosquito ointments. His staff consisted of half a dozen local boys called chemists, whose job it was to check the vats of sugar molasses in the various stages of crystallization. Sugar contents are regularly recorded, and when the results were analysed, an estimate of the crop yield would be made. These yield estimates are used in the marketing of the sugar and exert considerable influence on the prices, which are closely governed by the laws of supply and demand. Don quickly discovered that the work of a sugar chemist during crop is never done. He was putting in 12 or 14 hours a day, but was really needed for most of the 24, for the factory ran continuously six days and nights each week. Also, there were three shifts of laboratory boys, but there was only one Don. When the crop period is over, the remaining eight months of the year are spent in preparing the factory for the next crop. Since little of this work concerns the chemist, his task during this period is an easy one. Don had all of the hard time without the easy one, but the factory's manager, a charming and efficient Scott, helped to make his job a more pleasant one. Whilst Don stirred vats of sugar and swatted mosquitoes, and I drew plans and marked out new roads and castries, Bill wrote, rebuilt the dinghy, painted the topsides, and made a survey of the harbour for the authorities. He also acted as boat wife on board, cooking the breakfast and doing most of the chores. Thus, the months passed by pleasantly as we worked, lazed, made friends, and became more intimately acquainted with the true West Indian life. Close to the shore of the little cove in which we were anchored was a low stone building which had once belonged to the army and now had been adroitly converted into a restaurant come nightclub. Our good friend, the landlord, had named it Luna Park, which seemed a very fair description when the moon shone down through the tall palm trees. In this pleasant spot, he lived with his wife and twelve children. To spare Bill the considerable effort of cooking all our meals on board, we contracted with his wife to provide our meals. In this way, we came to learn of the subtleties of West Indian cooking. The fishermen, paddling home from seaward in their pierogies, would stop and leave a kingfish, snapper, or perhaps a blue-streaked dolphin. In an hour or two, 
broiled over the charcoal, these would be on our plates, garnished with hot pepper sauce and surrounded by sweet potatoes, tanniers, eddos and pigeon peas. For dessert there would be sapodillas, soursops and golden apples, marmy apples or star apples, or we could pick more sweet yellow mangoes from a nearby tree that we could eat. Sometimes I would sit under the palms here at Luna Park and yarn with Derek Walcott. Derek was a schoolteacher and a poet. He'd just written a play on Henry Christophe, one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution in 1804. We would talk of Haiti and its revolution, which began the emancipation of the slaves throughout the West Indies. Sometimes I would read his poems, poems with a strange, intriguing tone which spoke the beauty of his island home and the joys and sorrows of its peoples. Mostly it was the affairs of the island we talked about, for he was quite incurious about the rest of the world, perhaps with good reason. Here at Luna Park at carnival time I learned to dance the true calypso to the rhythm of a steel band led by Walcott. The favourite calypso, St Lucia's own Inner Calabash, was composed by Trinidadian Calypsonian Killer on a visit to the island. A calabash is a hard-shelled fruit which, when dried, is made into drinking utensils, maracas and so on. Third verse. I remember last year before the fire, in a big shop party they had inviters, myself and Kitchener. Well, I had to laugh at the administrator with a long moustache, how he fight in to drink out the business they give him in a calabash. A chorus? Ah, uh, every St. Lucian accustomed drinking in a calabash. They even drinking they canning beverage out a calabash. Orange crash or first class cream soda from a calabash. Every time they buy a beverage, they used a calabash. By way of contrast, we sailed one weekend down the coast to the tiny fishing village of Anselaray. Leaving content to anchor in the sheltered bay, we sailed a mile or two more along the rocky coast where the land rose sheer out of the water and climbed up into the high hills. Beaching the dinghy on a tiny beach, we walked through a coconut grove past old copper sheds to a river which led us to a stone and half-timbered house perched on a rocky ledge a third of the way up the gorge. On one side of the white-painted house with the red roof ran a tinkling waterfall, whilst on the other side a ruined sugar mill stood witness to the prosperity of former days, the days when there were slaves aplenty and a good market for sugar. We greeted our host, a friendly farmer from Yorkshire, who, tired of restriction in Britain, had bought this tropical farm. In but one year of hard work he had roused the overgrown land into a prosperous plantation, an interesting example of what can be done in these lush tropical isles if one really works hard. He found the farming a little different from England, for his 400 acres ranged in height from sea level to 800 feet above. His labourers took a little understanding. One man, chastised for not putting in tomato sticks properly, wailed, I know go to stick school, boss. Another, having been shown how to cut straight continuous furrows for potatoes, stuck his machete in the ground nearby. When he came to the machete, he described a neat curved furrow around it. A favourite racket in this locality was dog bite blackmail. As our host had a good watchdog, he had been the recipient of a goodly number of threatening letters. Written by some local lawyer, they would all follow the same pattern. To avoid further unpleasantness, please pay £4.10. shillings. When no reply is received to this, another note with a slightly plaintive tone will offer a settlement at bargain rates. All man pay £5 for dog bite, but you can have for £2.10. 
Our host invited us to explore his farm, so we roamed up the gorge until it became so narrow the sheer sides almost squeezed us. Strolling back in the hot mid-afternoon sun, we noticed high above us little patches of cultivation perched like eagles' nests on the crags. It looked as though one would need to be a mountaineer to reach them, but our host assured us he rode there on a horse. We paused to bathe in the chuckling stream, then back to the house for long cool drinks before sailing back to Luna Park. We carried a cargo of tomatoes back for the market in Castries, but as we rippled sweetly through the phosphorescent tropical night, our thoughts were far away from such mundane things. One weekend in March, Bill and Don took a charter party to Martinique. I planned a photographic foray, so I bartered a passage in content for the loan of a car and drove east and south across the island to its southern tip. There stands the dilapidated township of Vaufort, once the capital of the island. For years, Vaufort had been growing poorer, as more and more people migrated to Castries and the richer northern part of the island. But during the war years, it had become a little boomtown when the United States built an air and naval base there, Bean Field. When the Americans left the town, it slipped back to its old ways, but is now receiving a facelift from the vigorous district officer. The DO there was my friend Harry Simmons, artist and authority on West Indian history and affairs. As DO, he was the chief government representative for the whole southern province, being responsible only to the administrator and the legislative council of the island government. During my three-day visit, I stayed in Harry's friendly home, once the war home of an American major, and learned of his efforts to rebuild the economy of this district. By introducing a land grant and purchase scheme, Simmons was gradually increasing the agricultural output, and more important still, was luring men back from castries, where unemployment is a perennial problem. The soil is rich and easily worked, there is ample rainfall and a subtropical climate, the combination of which would make this into an area of rich farmlands. A friend and I drove across rough tracks beyond the roads and then walked until we came to a remote East Indian village. These East Indians were descendants of labourers indentured into the island after the abolition of slavery, who might have been in India. Their homes were huts with walls of neat strips of interwoven wood giving a pleasing basketwork pattern. The roofs were thatched with grasses. A woman crouched outside one house, grinding rice with an enormous hand-carved pencil and mortar. We stopped to talk. At least my friend talked in the French patois, widely spoken in the island, whilst I listened. Lengthy explanations with suitable exclamations ensued when my friend explained my mode of living, and when we left, the woman gave us little cake breads as a parting gift. These cakes were an expensive delicacy for the poor people, and I felt very humble when I could offer only a few cigarettes in return. Once, I took a bus ride, though I must confess, many warned me against it. They build their own buses in St. Lucia. That is to say, they import the motors and the chassis and build the coachwork to their liking. The formula goes something like this. Take some heavy boards and bolt them to the chassis. Take some lighter boards for sides and roof. Nail these in the appropriate places. Then paint the whole in suitably lurid reds, yellows and greens. When dry, you have an omnibus which will hold upwards of 30 people, about 50 chickens, two medium-sized sows and a dog or two. By tradition, every good bus must have a name emblazoned on it in letters as large as possible. Some have named their buses after personalities such as Killer and Lord Invader, Clipsonians, and Winston Churchill, politician. Other buses with names such as Sweet and Low, 
Washington Express and Fortitude belied their performances. Arriving at the bus station, I chose my bus. This is the right approach, for they all go in more or less the same direction, more or less when they feel like it. The hardened traveller carefully chooses the driver, who he thinks looks the most wide awake. It is all a gamble, however, for even the sleepiest drivers will suddenly awaken and set off at a furious pace as if the devil or a zombie had just asked them for a ride. For an additional charge of sixpence, one may ride in the front with the driver, but wishing to savour the journey to its full, I took a place on a narrow backless bench in the rear. After much experimenting, I found that the most comfortable position was to crouch on the seat as if one was on one's haunches, pretending that the seat was not there. In this way, being a long, thin fellow, I was draped in roughly equal parts fore and aft of the bench. My travelling companions, mostly well-padded women with low centres of gravity, had few of the physical problems I grappled with as we tore round bend after bend, klaxon blaring. St. Lucia's drivers drive on their horns. After all, using the brakes would tend to wear them out, and changing gears would tend to wear out the drivers. Besides, under St. Lucian law, if you sound your horn, it is a point to you. We roared up over Morn Fortune and ran twisting down the other side, across a valley, then up again, this time climbing to 1,200 feet over the Bar de Ile, the mountain ridge across the island. To the uninitiated, this bus ride might have seemed a little hair-raising. I was rapidly being initiated. Indifferent as the drivers were to their departure times, once underway they became fired with a fiendish sense of urgency. It is also a physiological fact that the locals have delayed reflexes when it comes to approaching corners whilst driving. After much study, I decided that the psychology behind their driving is thus. I have just laboured up a long steep hill, which must have worn out the bus quite a bit. Therefore, it would be folly to apply the brakes when coasting down the other side of the hill. Anyway, my horn is louder than the other fellow's, which makes it his responsibility to hear mine first. And so we tore on our way, scattering chickens, grown so smart that they never get caught, avoiding other vehicles by the breadth of a hair and avoiding cows by the grace of God. Stiff and aching, I climbed down at my destination and assured myself that there was at least one great advantage in sitting in the back. One is further from the hitting end. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.